0: I think I said that the last episode was going to be the last one of the year, but I seem to have jumped the gun on that. Hi, it's your procrastinating host, Jesse Bartholomew, avoiding what I actually planned on doing today, which is go through my closets and get rid of the clothes I haven't worn in five years but can't seem to say goodbye to. Instead, we're having an impromptu, last-minute episode on New Year's traditions. And here's what I did. I started by researching Appalachian New Year rituals, I also asked all my Facebook friends and people in the show's Facebook group, Kentucky History and and Moore, and I looked at all the responses and tried to dig into the history of some of these rituals, because, you know, when they get passed down, like, from generation, we don't ask why, typically, we just do them, and so I wanted to know, you know, why do we do these kind of kooky things, and some of them just have these great stories behind them. Led me down some rabbit holes, not where I meant to go, but should be fairly entertaining. Also, I realize that Kentucky's Appalachian region is only a small part of Appalachia, but for the most part, Appalachian communities are fairly similar in that they are rural, family-oriented, and have close relationships to nature. And so a lot of these rituals end up being similar throughout Appalachia. So I've included some that may not be specifically from Kentucky, just so you know. Okay, we'll start with what I'm guessing is one of the better known traditions. I I haven't met anybody who doesn't know about this one, and that's eating a bowl of Hoppin' John, which is basically peas and rice. There are so many variations of it, but you can easily look up all kinds of recipes online. In some areas, they use other types of peas, but most commonly, and what I know we do, like around Louisville at least, uh, we make it with black-eyed peas. And the most common recipe I saw online was peas, rice, onions, bacon, and salt. There are variations that might have ham, sausage, turkey, peppers, vinegar, and spices. Sounds pretty, like every variation sounds good. I don't think you can go wrong here. Um, And in a minute, I'll talk about what you should serve it with, but more importantly, where did it come from and why do we eat it on New Year's? The earliest references to Hop and John recipes are from the early to mid-19th century. The first appears to be from 1838 in Recollections of a Southern Matron, where the term Hop and John is mentioned and the recipe includes bacon and rice. You can get an old copy of this book on Thriftbooks for $68 if you're curious. Then in 1847, there was a recipe for it in a publication called The Carolina Housewife by Sarah Rutledge. Not to get too far off course here, but I have to talk about this. I looked up The Carolina Housewife. You can order it online for $25. Sarah Rutledge, the author, included over 550 recipes in this cookbook. She was the daughter of Edward Rutledge, Who was once governor of south carolina as well as the youngest delegate to sign the declaration of independence when the carolina housewife cookbook was published it was done so anonymously in its modern reprinted version they tried to keep it very much the same as the original with an added introduction by anna wells rutledge who i'm guessing is a daughter or granddaughter and she wrote in the introduction that it was published anonymously because, quote, the name of a Charleston woman appeared in print but thrice, when born, when married, and when buried. That just struck a chord with me because in all my research, both for the show and genealogy stuff, it's just so much harder to learn about women. It's it's a tough pill to swallow sometimes. But anyway, the cookbook sounds Pretty good, actually. Very interesting. And of course, a lot of that stuff doesn't exist anymore, or there's a different name for it. Um, But it also includes explanations for some old-timey phrases like, brown it with a salamander, which apparently meant broil using a hot iron. Hoppenjohn and John also appears in William Peterfield Trent and Frederick Law Olmsted's 1861 travelog, A Journey in the Seaboard Slave States, which appears to just be Olmsted and Trent traveling around the South, observing cultures and economies and writing about it. You can still find that online as well. Hop and John is believed to come from the Gula people living in South Carolina and it probably evolved from the simple meal of rice and peas that slaves were fed because it had just enough nutrients for them to survive the trip from west africa to the americas so there are some variants in the tradition in the south people eat hop and john to bring a prosperous year filled with good luck the peas are symbols of coins and sometimes people leave actual coins under the bowls when they eat or they'll even put a coin in the pot when they're cooking. Careful with that. Some folks leave three peas uneaten on their plates to bring good luck, fortune, and romance. And as for the sides, it should be served with collard greens, my favorite, mustard greens, turnip greens, chard, kale, some leafy greens that are not only great for you, but are also symbols of good fortune because they are the color of money. If you're really hoping to win the lottery, you could even include some cornbread on the side because it's the color of gold and who would pass up an excuse to eat cornbread. And then the day after New Year's Day, so not New Year's Day, but the day after, if you have leftovers, they are no longer Hop and John. They're known as Skip and Jenny and are meant to show one's frugality which is supposed to invite even more prosperity for the new year. So make a lot, save your leftovers, and keep eating them all week. That's the recipe for good fortune. And if you're sitting there thinking, well, gosh, I just don't really like peas and rice, maybe that's okay. In response to Hop and John recipes being shared on Reddit, one user wrote, quote, It ain't brought nothing but the same old same since I was knee-high to a grasshopper. So, doesn't work for everybody, I guess. And if you're not much of a cook, perhaps you could burn some candles instead. One of my Facebook friends said that they burn bayberry candles, and this is a tradition that goes back to the colonists. I've actually seen more articles about them being used at Christmas, but still with the intent of having a prosperous New Year. You have to think about this one in context. The colonists were pretty gross. Hygiene was kind of low on the priority totem pole. They were busy trying to stay alive and build stuff and all that. And there had to have been a lot of bad smells. In fact, this is an internet rabbit hole I had no intention of going down, but I just could not resist. There is a whole Reddit thread about how Native Americans actually talked about how bad the colonists smelled. And there's a History.com article titled, Why Pilgrims Arriving in America Resisted Bathing, which included the fun fact that King Louis XIV is said to have only bathed three times in his entire life. People washed their faces, but not their bodies. They changed clothes, and they thought that was enough. In fact, most Puritans thought submerging your whole body in water was bad for you, and of course, you could not get naked because that would be immodest. The colonists had bathhouses, but they weren't really for bathing. They were for socializing or relaxing and then Of course, some of them they thought had restorative properties in the water. So if they were sick, they might all go sit in these pools. And you can imagine how well that went. But they put a lot of stock into their undergarments doing the work. So most of their underwear was linen. And they thought that if they wore fresh linen, that fabric was absorbing all the body's impurities, the sweat, the dirt, the bacteria. Now there is some truth to that. Linen does absorb moisture, and in fact, several websites that sell linen products are eager to tell you that linen is also a naturally antibacterial and pathogen-resistant fabric, which is why it's been used as bandage for years and years. But you cannot rely solely on your linen pants to keep you clean. You still have to bathe. Sorry, Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis. But yeah, the Native Americans were not shy about their feelings on this, like the Wampanoag who thought it was gross that Europeans carried around used handkerchiefs in their pockets. And I'm so glad I'm not the only one who finds this disgusting. I have never been able to wrap my head around the practice of blowing your nose in fabric and putting that fabric back in your pocket. It's the grossest thing we do. Don't do it. Native Americans were also way more conscious about their oral hygiene. They used wooden chew sticks to brush. They chewed on minty herbs. They even used charcoal to whiten their teeth. But the colonists, for the most part, ignored oral hygiene completely. So you can imagine what their breath was like all the time. All of this to say that when colonists realized they could burn certain waxes to make a place smell better, they were so eager to hop on that train which brings us back to the bayberry that was a shrub that was growing mostly in the sand belt of the atlantic coast as well as on the shores of lake erie and the bayberry fruit is crusted with this greenish white wax so they found it they boiled it and they realized it made a really nice wax that smelled so good and clean and fresh light one up at the dinner table and you wouldn't even notice your husband hadn't brushed his teeth in five years and it just burned really nicely just the ultimate candle but there was a problem you needed a lot of these fruits these little berries to make the candles it ended up being a lot of work and super time consuming and there were other ways to burn other types of candles faster and make them more easily but These bayberry candles smelled so good and burned so long and clean, they didn't want to give up on them completely, so they became special occasion candles. You might only bring them out once a year, like on Christmas or New Year's. Part of the tradition is that you're supposed to leave them burning for a long time, which goes against everything I was ever taught about candle safety, and I cannot recommend to you all in good conscience, but that is part of the tradition. And the main goal appears to be, again, financial prosperity, also good luck, which I think are just the two things that humans are usually most concerned with. But according to the Augusta Candle Company in Georgia, burning of the Bayberry candle also protects what you already have. It protects what you've worked for all year long and, quote, keeps the evil out of your life, which sounds pretty good to me. And then the other part of this tradition that I love is that you're encouraged to exchange candles with a friend and recite a poem, which goes like this, quote, these bayberry candles come from a friend. So on Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve, burn it down to the end. For a bayberry candle burned to the socket will bring joy to the heart and gold to the pocket. Now, one more thing, guys, candles are tricky. I was recently listening to a science podcast and they had this episode where they were talking to, I can't remember what her actual title was, but they were talking about what's okay to breathe in for humans and basically other than oxygen, we just shouldn't be breathing anything else in. Um, So in your house, things like candles and incense are not great. Vapes are definitely a no. But the other part of the conversation is like, you, you just have to live, right? Like you have to enjoy life and treat yourself sometimes. So burn candles, that's okay. But you can look out for certain things like paraffin wax, which is a petroleum byproduct that releases carcinogens. You do not want that stuff in your house. So you can look to alternatives like beeswax and candles with cotton wicks. And I found some Bayberry tapers online that are a Bayberry beeswax blend, which are probably okay. Okay, off that soapbox, didn't even mean to get on it, but it was just just recently on my mind. So, moving on, <laughs> my favorite kinds of traditions are the ones where you don't have to buy or make anything, and that brings us to the first footer. It didn't start in Appalachia, but it's apparently one that is still pretty popular. As with most traditions, there are different versions. The one listed on an Appalachian website I found says that to be the first foot in someone else's house is good luck. So if you walk into your mom's house on January 1st and you're the first person to do so who doesn't live there, you have good luck. If a man walks into your house first in the new year, that's good luck for you. If a woman walks into your house, that's bad. Also, if you keep chickens, If a man walks in, it means a large hatching of roosters is coming your way, and if it's a woman, that means you'll have a lot of hens. So, the backstory on First Foot. There are rumors that this started with a Viking invasion of the British Isles, which was definitely bad luck for a blonde stranger to show up at your door, yes. And in the north of England, it's considered luckiest if a dark-haired man enters your home first... And a light-haired man or a woman are not necessarily bad luck, just not as good as a dark-haired man. So if Uncle Fred and Uncle Tom show up for New Year brunch and only one of them has dark hair, you make him cross your threshold first. And Aunt Penelope can wait in the car. One version of this tradition says the guest better show up with a gift or it's immediate bad luck, regardless of hair color. The gift should be symbolic. Examples given were coal, whiskey, coins, or black buns. I think whiskey is the best option there. Also, what the heck are black buns? Also known as a Scottish bun, a black bun is a dense, rich fruitcake. A popular New Year's treat that apparently pairs well with whiskey, so sign me up. It's definitely an old-timey recipe and you won't catch places who serve things with acai or wheatgrass to offer them, but it's in more traditional bakeries. You can still find them, especially in Scotland. They're still fairly popular. There's one bakery that bakes about 6,000 of them each year around this time. They look neat and sound delicious. So let's bring them back. Now, if a dark-haired man with whiskey and black buns steps foot into your house on New Year's Day He has to be served first. And if a redhead tries to step foot into your house at all, you just toss them out immediately. Bad, bad luck, those redheads. And this tradition also comes with a little poem uh, that I have to read because it starts out pretty cute and normal and then it takes a real weird turn there at the end. It's called The New Year Blessing. A merry Christmas on ye and a very good year, long life and health to the whole household, Your life and mirth living together, peace and love between women and men, goods and wealth, stock and store, plenty potatoes and enough herring, bread and cheese, butter and beef, death like a mouse in the stackyard of the barn, sleeping safely when you lie, and the flea's tooth, may it not be well. (laughs) So it's like, Merry Christmas, peace be with you, hope you don't get bitten by flies while you sleep, writing that in all my holiday cards next year. Now, another one I liked was that you can look into a well at midnight on New Year's Eve and you will see the reflection of your future love or maybe hear their name echoed in the well. You can also do this on Halloween. Try to find some backstory on this one. There's not much out there. For good health for your children you can take out a ribbon and measure them from their nose to their knees and then hang that ribbon somewhere in the house where it won't be disturbed you can cut some onions lay them out and let them soak up any remaining bad luck so you don't take it with you into the new year this was on an appalachian website uh, but when i looked it up i found out that the greeks also have an onion thing Uh, they will hang a yellow onion on their door as a symbol of good luck. And then also another onion thing, the Germans, uh, they have an onion calendar. So you take an onion, peel it in half, peel apart the layers till you get 12. um, Add a teaspoon of salt to each layer in a cup around midnight on New Year's Eve. This one's a lot of work. I don't know about this one. Check on the cups at 6 a.m., and the moisture content of each onion cup will indicate how much moisture you can expect in each month of the new year. Another ritual listed on this Appalachian website was this one, quote, stick seven pennies into a potato, place it in a tin can and hide it in the back of a cabinet. You'll always have what you need. That's all it says. To make your furniture last longer, rub, Just rub all that furniture down with a nice combination of oil, lard, and whiskey, and do not wipe it off until January 2nd. Ooh, your house is going to smell so good. Bayberry, black buns, and whiskey-soaked furniture. To honor the dead... You can light three candles for those who passed before the new year, but don't set them in a straight line and do not light them in order. So maybe light the first one, the last one, and then the middle. Also, you can smack the corners of your property with willow tree branches. That will help keep misfortune at bay, and you can use hawthorn to avoid lightning strikes and thieves. In many families, the person who cooks the New Year's meal might hide coins in the food. I've seen this a lot in everything I've read. Um, A lot of times they might put it in the cabbage or in the potatoes. So if you're going to your girlfriend's house in Harlan for the first time and her mom serves pork, potatoes, and cabbage for New Year's dinner, chew gently, okay? But also pay attention because if you're the one who finds the coins in your meal, you'll have good financial luck all year long. Finally, it's bad luck to hang a calendar of the new year before New Year's Day. I know it's tempting, you're ready for that fresh start, but don't do it. If you have New Year's traditions, practices, rituals that I didn't mention today, you can send them to me and we'll talk about them next year. You can always reach me via kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com. You can connect with the show on social media, Instagram at kyhistoryhaunts, search Kentucky History and Haunts on Facebook, and please, please leave a review if you haven't already. I have way more listeners than I have reviews, which is a shame because it's the quickest, easiest, 100% free way to support the show. And I have lots planned for the coming months, so stay tuned and thanks again for listening. Until next time, Happy New Year.